Carnivorous couch, shit happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch with Brady and Rob. Hi everybody, hi everybody, hi everybody, welcome to another episode of The Carnivorous Couch. It's a film a week from Two Film Geeks, a spoiler full cod- podcast, codcast? Codpass. Codpiece. Yeah. <laughs> um, this week we did uh, Wes Anderson's confectionery dollhouse of a film, uh, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm. Um, Candy dollhouse. Yes, yeah, gingerbread uh. hotel. <laughs> um, let me see, it stars uh, uh, an Incredibly insane ensemble of a cast. Let me see. We've got uh, who's the old writer? Oh, the old writer. We got Tom Wilkinson. That's Tom Wilkinson. We got Jude Law as the young version of him. We've mm-hmm. got Cyrus Ronan as uh, the love interest Agatha. We've got. Oh, here, let me correct your pronunciation because that's a weird name. It's Sushia. Sushia Ronan. Uh, I'm gonna butcher it every. It sounds like tape playback. Sushia. Now just play this backwards, and you'll you'll hear Satan. Um. <laughs> anyway, uh, let me see. Who else do we have in this? There's a guy who plays Zero Mustafa, who's a brand new actor. He hasn't been in anything before this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he's a newcomer. Uh, we got name? Ray Fiennes. Do you know his name? M. Gustav. I don't off the top of my uh, head. Somebody will look that up for us in a minute or two. It's Italian, I think. Oh, uh, go on with other people who are in this. Uh, yeah, oh, so Ray Fiennes is the big one as uh, M. Gustav. Uh, who is Jason kind of Schwartzman's in there, right? Yeah, Jason Schwartzman, a big uh, Wes Anderson perennial. Uh, who am I? Uh, Edward Norton, Jeff Goldblum, Tilda Swinton, Bill Murray, of course. Briefly. Briefly. <laughs> a, a murderous Willem Dafoe, as only Willem Dafoe can be. Uh, Adrian Brody, uh, who I have to say is, is getting interesting again. I, I'm liking him more recently than I did in the pianist days. Uh, we and let me see. I was trying to get the name of that particular guy who plays Zero Mustafa as a kid. How do you say Cyrus Ronan again? Uh, Sirsha. Like an Irish okay. name. That's cool. Gaelic or something like that. Uh, Tony Revolori. Tony Revolori. Who I really liked, and of course Owen Wilson was in there a little bit too. Uh, yeah. So, uh, fucking big ass cast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Brady, you want to do plot synopsis? Uh, I'll try. It's it's been a while. Uh, full disclosure: I saw this movie uh, about a month ago, and Rob and I went back over it. Uh, and, I, and I loved it when it came out, but I might be a little hazy on some of the details. So let's see. Yeah, I've we seen it. I've seen it about three times, and I just took notes on it when we went through it. So you know, if you get stuck, I'll. Uh, All right, yeah, you'll. Uh, I can tag in. in, tag out. Okay, so we uh, open in this fictitious Eastern Bloc. Uh, European country, and no, don't we open with the girl running to the? Yeah, but isn't she coming uh, back to the country to see the writer's uh, gravestone? Yeah, I just don't think it's in that country. Oh, I thought it was for some because reason. he never makes it back to the Grand Budapest or that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay, it, all right, that's in some other country, pro- but also wherever Eastern he European, lives. Yeah. I think. Actually, all right. See, I'm already hazy. Anyway, she goes to his uh, memorial bust. His yeah, basically his grave. Sixteen by nine aspect ratio. Yep, and she has the book, this book that clearly means a lot to her, written by him, and she's looking at his picture, and then we essentially leap forward, or backward in time, both into the book, Rob noted, uh, into the forward of the book, 
but also in time to when this writer was still alive as an older man. 1.85 by 1 aspect ratio. And he guides us from there, from the foreword, into the actual meat of the book, which is in this Jude Law time, which is probably in the 60s, I'm guessing? 68. 2.35 by 1 aspect ratio. 68, and it's about when he went to visit this old hotel, the Grand Budapest Hotel, in this fictitious Eastern European country, and while there... You know, he meets the, the uh, what is it, the concierge? No, not the concierge. He's the proprietor, I guess. Yeah, the mysterious proprietor who shows up all the time. Yeah, the mysterious pro- proprietor, Zero Mustafa. And he ends up making a, a friendship with him, and he invites him to dinner to tell him the story of when the hotel was in the height of its popularity. Now it's, you know, kind of waning, and he says it's basically on the arc to its eventual demolition. Uh, but it's already fallen out of relevancy. So he tells the story in the, I want to say 30s, right? 20s, 30s? Uh, let me see. It's the start of the closing of the frontier, so I believe that's 33? Yeah. Anyway, pre-World War II, d- just at the kind of the rumblings of World War II are starting to come into being, and this hotel is this very uh, lush, extravagant, baroque, I guess you could say, 1.33 by 1 aspect ratio. <laughs> yeah, this beautiful monument to decadence and elegance, and also a very something Wes Anderson is very interested in, this kind of old style. And so we get to see this hotel at the height of its power, and we get to meet M. Gustav, who was the proprietor at the time, and we're hearing the story of when Zero first became a bellboy in the hotel and was basically taken under Gustav's wing. And so we see kind of the inner workings of the hotel, and we get a lot of Anderson tracking shots uh, moving through these very uh, elegantly manicured kind of diorama-like sets. It's very beautiful. And so the main plot, or, well, in a way the main plot, even though I might suggest later that it's even the B-plot of the movie, kicks in when this woman played by Tilda Swinton, who's playing a wealthy, uh, rich widow, is murdered. And she had a relationship, a sexual one even, with Gustav, and ends up leaving a lot of her stuff to him, but this doesn't jibe well with the children who always mistreated her and who she didn't have much care for. But obviously they're trying to get the estate to all come to them. And so the one thing that she leaves to Gustav is this painting called Boy with Apple. And uh, Rob, do you want to hop in here? Because remind us what the value of the painting is. Oh, over five million rubles, or couplets. Okay, yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, wealthy painting. Uh, wealthy painting, yeah, it's, it's a very valuable painting. But what happens is the police end up investigating Gustav for the widow's murder. And so Gustav ends up in jail and having to rely on Zero to get him out. Uh, and this is where we meet the character Agatha, uh, Zero's eventual wife, played by Sir Ronan, who's a baker. And I'm probably skipping over a lot of stuff here, but... What she ends up doing is... she yeah, you're actually right on. Yeah, she uh, smuggles in the tools Gustav will need to break himself and some of his prison buddies <laughs> out into a lovely cake because she makes the most elegant and lovely cakes, uh, which are basically kind of a nice little metaphor for the hotel itself, these lovely, elegant things. And we get this cool shot where... Hen- hence my intro. Yeah. <laughs> a confectionery dollhouse of a hotel. Uh, yeah, and, and I don't want to get into what it's about yet, but this is an important scene. We have this process where the prison guards are kind of looking at items that are coming in for the prisoners, and you know there are sausages and whatnot, and they're chopping them up. They're chopping them up to make sure that they don't have the very thing that Agatha's cake has in it. But when they see the cake, they just 
They can't do it. They can't Even though it's it. shaped exactly like little chisels and hammers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, it, but it's just too beautiful. You know, kind of like the those stories of the Nazis in Paris. Just, I can't bring myself to destroy something of this elegance. And so Gustav is able to break out of prison uh, with the direction of Harvey Keitel and a lovely cameo. But before the actual breakout happens, the lawyer, who is actually, you know, on the up and up and trying to do everything right, is Jeff coerced. Goldberg. Yes, he's coerced and told... Uh, who, who are you working for? Are you looking, working for that little fruit? I'm just Gustav. Are you working for me? You know, we don't want the will to come to light. We don't want to do any of that stuff. We want you to just bury it and fucking distribute it to us. Uh, the lawyer will not be coerced. His cat is thrown out the window. And uh, after that, he is subsequently tracked down by the same guy who's looking for Serge, the apparent uh, deserter and, blah, and uh, accessory to the crime. Uh, and the lawyer is then killed in a very Hitchcockian sort of uh, chase scene in the middle of a museum. Yeah, by Willem Dafoe, who's the the heavy of the family. He's not related, but he's kind of their go-to murder guy, I guess. Then the escape happens. Yeah, then the escape happens, but he's still a fugitive, uh, and he needs to get back to the hotel, back to the country where the Grand Budapest is, or he'll be caught. So here we have a scene where... He basically calls in favors from other hoteliers across Europe. He, you know, he's spent years building these friendships, these relationships, kind of this idea of civility that's a huge motif in the movie of you know, the world being civil and eventually becoming uncivil. And so we get this nice montage of him, him and Zero staying in different hotels. So they kind of, it's like... Uh, well, it's that they're staying in different hotels. They mobilize the concierge force. Yeah. All the concierge phone each other like this big phone tree, and they all set up for a way to get yeah, through. It's kind of like a hotel underground railroad. Right. So that happens, but it's not staying in different hotels. They first go to, like, they get picked up, they get taken to a monastery, they get in the cable cars, right. they swatch, swap, they go pretend to be monks, they pray, and they go to confession because that's where Serge is supposed to be. Okay, you're right. It's not a chain of hotels. It's a chain of uh, favors given out by the different uh, hoteliers. Exactly. Okay, yeah. And then we get yeah this beautiful shot. like It's supposed to, I guess, be high in the Alps. Well, hold monastery. on. Let's get, let's get with Serge. They're in oh, the confessional yeah. with Serge, right? Uh, why don't you do that because I'm forgetting that. Okay, so what happens is basically they get picked up by Bill Murray, who has the perfume that he loves, and of course they offer money because they must offer money. He, of course, won't accept. Gets the perfume sprayed on. Feels much better because he was always a very heavily perfumed man and he wanted that. Then they get dropped off at a monastery and they say, are you these people? Get on the next cable car. Are you these people? You know, are you M. Gustav and Zero Mustafa? Yes. Uh, get on the next car. Okay. Are you M. Gustav? Yes. Okay. Swap with me. Are you M. Gustav? Yes. Go sing. Put these on. Are you M. Gustav? Confess. For what? I didn't. I'm innocent. <laughs> oh, confess. He goes to confession. There's Serge in there, who's the guy who's been looking for him, who theoretically ratted him out. But really, he was coerced into saying this, and that's why he split. And he s explains how there's a second copy of the will to be opened in the mur uh, event of the madam's murder. And then he's about to tell him where it is, but he then he gets killed by Willem Dafoe, and now they need to escape Willem Dafoe, the hitman guy. Yes, and so they escape in a <laughs> bobsled versus ski chase. Uh, so Defoe is skiing. Or actually, away. no, he's running from them. Sorry. Yeah, he's yeah, running yeah. from them because he's what he's taken something, right? No, he's killed Serge. But oh, okay. And uh, then they're trying to get him. Yeah, okay, they're trying to get him, and <laughs> the movie even kind of comments on it in a very funny line. We're like, wait, he's he's a murderous psychopath. Why are we chasing him? It's like, I don't know. We didn't really plan this. Um, and so very cool scene because what Anderson did is he used um stop motion models but in such a subtle way that it doesn't even call attention to it. 
it's just to allow us to have these uh, very nice overhead shots of the action kind of all spread out. We can kind of track the chase. Um, so, yeah, they eventually do, I think, catch up with him. Uh, but then Defoe gets the upper hand and knocks, nearly knocks Gustav off a cliff. Gustav is hanging. Well, Defoe stops on his skis because he's an awesome skier. Oh, yeah. And then they go flying off the thing on the uh, sled because they can't even break. Right. Okay, and then uh, Defoe's about to uh, murder Gustav and push him off the cliff, but Zero shows up in time to push Defoe off the cliff, and so the chase is back on, and they go back to the Budapest, uh, where actually Rob stepped in again. Okay, so they're going to go back to the Budapest. They're going to have Agatha sneak in, get the painting, because they don't want to be recognized. But then she gets chased by the son of the madam, who actually is the person who got her killed by Strychnine and set all this up. And then a big shootout occurs, and uh, Zero runs in to save her, and blah, 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 blah. Uh, everything works out okay because they recover the uh, second copy of the second will um, in the painting, and it clears uh, and basically yeah. leaves everything to M. Gustav. Yeah, everything in this plot is okay, but yet we do see while this is all happening that the movie's version of Nazis are starting to take up residence in the hotels. In fact, it's completely full of soldiers. So that right. when the bad guy, played by Brody, ends up shooting, all these soldiers come out and start shooting at him. Yeah. Who, who's shooting at who? <laughs> There's that little fruit. I'm going to blast him out of the water. <laughs> okay, yeah. And, then and they're all horrible shots. So everything <laughs> and gets resolved. And nobody actually gets killed. <laughs> yeah, no one actually gets killed. Um, so everything gets resolved, and this is you know kind of where our happily ever after coda is. Uh, but we find out that... Things aren't that clean because shortly after Zero and Agatha are married, Agatha dies of a, a disease. A tuberculosis-like yeah. disease. Yeah, tuberculosis-like disease. And uh, before that happens, we go back. Oh, we, well, I, I forgot to mention a very important scene. There's a scene early in the movie when they're traveling by train to the reading of the will. Uh, yeah, we mentioned it, but okay. I, do, I didn't think we mentioned the Norton character in the card. Uh, you probably didn't mention that, but you did mention the frontier. The closing the frontier scene. Okay, yeah. Well, this is important. Earlier, when they're traveling, you know, things are still ramping up for World War II, so there's a lot of soldiers, a lot of, you know, suspicious suspicion about people traveling. But this character, this officer played by Norton, actually had a friendship with Gustav when they were younger. And he says, you know, because of what you did for me, here's this card that says basically a permit of sorts. It's only temporary. He even mentions it's temporary, but that'll help you travel. And so at the end of the movie... Uh, they're traveling in the same area again, and they're stopped once again, except a soldier gets on who's not Norton, and Gustav goes to show him the card, and the guy looks at it, and he just rips it right up. And basically what happens is he's shot soon after. Yeah, in the end they shot him. Yeah, in the end they shot him. Which is sad and makes me Very cry. Very sad. And so a at this point, Gustav's story is done, so we hop back into the 60s time where you know Zero's telling the story over dinner, and uh, Jude Law, the Jude Law character, the writer, basically tells us that shortly thereafter he left the hotel, he went traveling around the world, and he he never made it back there. Right. Uh, yeah, and, and that's actually the end. <laughs> well, it actually ends back in the, uh, once again, uh, 16 by 9 aspect ratio where the lady's sitting by the grave. No, yeah, it, so what we do finishing basically the book. is we, we zoom through back through the telescope of time. We leave Gustav's story, then we leave the story of uh, Zero as an old man, then we go back to the Jude Law as an older writer played by Tom Wilkinson, 
we leave that and we end with the girl reading the book on a bench. Right. Uh, and then that's the end of it. So I think that's a good plot synopsis. Brady, good job. All right, thanks. That's a pretty complicated plot. You know, there, there's a part where they mentioned uh, this is the middle of the end of the beginning of the story uh, because there are three stories and there's one inside of one inside of one. So it's the middle of the end of the beginning of the third story, I think is when they bring that up. Or the end of the middle of the beginning. Something like that. The middle of the end of the beginning of the middle of the end of the third story. Something. Party of the first part. <laughs> so anyway, uh, uh, hey, 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 how do we like it? Rob, how did you like it? Well, I can't seem to keep my levels even. You liked it that much? But, um... It blew your mind so much that your levels will never be the same. I did like it quite a bit. Uh, This is probably my second or third favorite Wes Anderson movie in Quickly Rising. I believe. I believe so. Um, I really love the changing aspect ratios because that's a little geeky thing I'm into. And it shows different time periods. You know, they even bothered to make a difference between 16 by 9, which is our standard digital whatever present day format. And also the 1.85 by 1, which would be the, you know, late 80s, um, 16 millimeter kind of documenting of the forward in a sort of PBS kind of way. Um, that was good. The acting was great. Uh, you know, had all had all the hokey normal things that uh, Wes Anderson's known for, just kind of the stuff that uh, makes up a Wes Anderson move, this very kind of... Um, Plotted out camera movements, uh, you know, dolling shots, tracking shots, all that kind of stuff that Wes Anderson always does. It had a, uh, a highly detailed model of the hotel to show a bunch of, you know, kind of stuff uh, in the same way that he did that with cutting a ship in half in Life Aquatic. Um, yes, I mean, I just love Wes Anderson movies. Uh, and first of all, one of the things that sets this one apart is... Uh, the violence, actually, <laughs> was a, a fair bit of violence for a Wes Anderson movie, you know, especially the fingers of the lawyer getting chopped off and, like, the the woman's head in a bucket, uh, which I think we glossed over in the plot synopsis. Uh, yeah, pretty uh, pretty graphic for the whole thing, you know, murderous psychopath. Anyway, I give it uh, uh, A-. minus. A-. minus. All right, all right. High praise from Rob. Yeah, no, that is high praise from you. Okay, well, for my part, uh, yeah, I also loved it. I, I absolutely, yeah. It's my best movie of the year so far, and I, I've seen some real good ones this year. Uh, Lego Movie, Jodorowsky's Dune. But this one, I think, is just really something special. Uh, the reason I love it is that I think, uh, you know, Tenenbaums is maybe still my favorite Anderson but movies like Moonrise and this one are rising high for me and fast because I think Anderson is getting to a place of real thematic coherence. Well, yeah, his aesthetic is evolving as well. Yeah, no, his aesthetic is evolving, but I think these things are so, they're very tightly focused into a message, which I guess I'll get to in What's It All About. But I really like this one because it is so much fun. It's funny. It's brilliantly acted. This is the best finds has been since Schindler's List. Uh, everything is just beautiful, not a hair out of place. And it all manages, in spite of being so fun, 
to really have this undertone of, of real sorrow. I mean, it's at the end of the day, once we've seen it all play out, it's a very sad movie, easily his darkest. Right, and, and the very complicated plot is very cohesive. Right, yeah. It's very well put together. No, yeah, it's it's beautiful, and it's a beautiful love letter to older movies. I, I think, you know, this is just, I'm taking this on hearsay, but I guess uh, it's very indebted to the style of Ernst Lubitsch, uh, which I still need to see one of his movies. Uh, but, yeah, it's got this kind of sense of... Say that name again? Ernst Lubitsch, L-U-B-I-T-S-C-H. I don't think that's how you pronounce that. I can't think of how else to. I thought it was Stefan Zweig. Oh, no, that's the writer. But the the film style... Oh, okay, okay. That's what I was getting confused kind about. Kind of the elegant, I think, uh, very... Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Ernst Lubitsch is, is the film style you're talking about, but then there's also th- uh, elements of the story that are related to the writings of Stefan Zweig. Right, Okay. Yes. good. Because th- Ernst Lubitsch and Stefan Zweig sound completely different. To me, I mean, to me at least, they might sound the same to some of our listeners out there, but uh, to me, they, they sound like different people. Yeah, no, they are different people. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, so I love this movie because I love a movie that can be fun and funny and also hit you with that completely different emotional note. Because uh, at the end of the day, like, this thing hits hard on a pathos level, and none of it is, uh, none of it feels too saccharine. It actually feels dark and almost cynical uh, in a way that isn't too bitter, but is just kind of very elegic. You know, yeah, that's that's the word for a film like this, elegic. Anyway, I love it. I give it an A. Uh yeah, it's great. Great. Uh, let's move on to... Well, let's do a game and then do uh, what's it all about after that. Okay, sounds good. Okay. Uh, what are we going to go do? Uh, uh, Metacritical? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Archie. A Metacritical. Rob's never going to win. A Metacritical. Brady's the victor again. So it's time to play. I'm gonna lose today. Metacritical, yeah, it's time, time to play. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Metacritical, where we're gonna do this on the theme of ensemble cast movies, which Brady will mostly have to come up with because, uh, well, I know this is a Wes Anderson episode, but I don't want to do all Wes Anderson ones, and I can only think of. Wes Anderson one. So I'm going to go ahead and go with uh, 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 Life Aquatic, unless you already know what the Metacritical score is for that, Brady. I don't know offhand. I mean, I'm sure I saw the score back when it came out, but that's been some time. All right, I picked the movie, so you guess first. Okay, Life Aquatic. I'm going to go 66. Even though this is one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies, I think that the critics didn't like it that much. I was going to go with 64. All right, 64. Yeah, that's one I need to revisit. I need, I need to revisit and get my thoughts square on it because I've only seen it once. It's really good. It's really good. Sorry, I'm having trouble uh, leaning back. Hold on. Noise. Having having trouble leaning at the computer and typing in the stuff, and then also typing in the microphone. Answer is sixty-two. Ooh, all right. 
All right, Brady, your turn to pick an ensemble cast movie. Okay, ensemble cast movie. Let's go with uh, <laughs> let's go with a best picture winner who's uh, whose stock pretty much dropped as soon as it won. Uh, Crash. Oh yeah, I haven't even seen that. Oh but really? I, but I think the fucking uh, no, it looks stupid, so I didn't watch it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I liked it a lot the first time, and then a little less, and then a little less. It's okay. I mean, it, it's not as apocalyptically bad as some would lead you to believe, but it's pretty hokey. Yeah, but I think the critics loved it for one reason or another. I'm going to go with uh, 82. 82? All right, yeah. I, I do know that it was positively received, especially by the late Roger Ebert. Uh, that said, I, I'm going to go a little less than that. I'm going to say 68. Brady goes 68. And I'm already racking my brains 69. for another. Okay. Wait, was that a 2005 movie? Uh, yeah, 2005. Don Cheadle and Sandra Bullock? Yep. All right. Well, Brady won big on that one. What did I, what did I do? I did. So that's 13. What did you get, Brady? Six. I got a 68. So that's minus one for me. Fuck you. Bastard. <laughs> 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 no, but right, Rob finally won. For those of you who are only listening to this cast, Rob beat me in our last Metacritical. Yeah. Pretty badly, too. For once. Uh, Okay, so I got to think of another ensemble. Yeah, if you can. Uh. Or you can. I wanted to say Monsters to Ball, but I'm wondering if that's going to be on Metacritic. Uh, it'll definitely be on Metacritic. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that probably isn't the 70s, so 70. 70. All right. I will go. I'm going to go 67. <laughs> You're just like jumping three points away from me to keep this slim, aren't you? No, no, I, I really, I'm, I'm trying to, I like hitting the bullseye. I'm trying to hit the bullseye. But I actually don't know the answer to this one. Uh, it's not on there. Uh, did you put an apostrophe? In? Really? Fucking Metacritic can't figure it out if I forget the apostrophe? Yeah, that's, that's horrible weird. searching. That's I horrible know. search algorithm. God, Google is better than all of you. Google is better at life. Do what Google does. Jesus Christ. Uh, anyway, 69. 69, okay. A second 69. So what did you guess? I guessed 67, you guessed 70, so you uh, gained a point on that one. Yeah, just one, though, and I already I lost 13 when you only lost, like, four in the first one or something like that. So. Uh, true. Okay, so now it's Your my turn. turn. I'm going to go with... Uh, I'll harmonize with you, though. <laughs> I'm going to go with another guy who is very known for his ensembles, and I think this is his last film, the great Robert Altman, and I'm going to go with A Prairie Home Companion. Prairie Home Companion. That was an ensemble? Yeah. Okay, I think this one did relatively poorly by critics' standards. Uh, it was supposed to be thought of as, as heavily anticipated and did, then did poorly. Anyway, uh, your guess first. My guess first? Hmm... 
I'm going to go with I'm going to go 76. I'm going to undercut you down at 69. Whoa. Seventy five. Seventy five. What did right. you guess? Uh seventy six. Bastard. I thought this ah, I thought this was horribly received. No, no it, it was received pretty well. Like I there thought was it was just a bad movie, I was told. There was talk of like it w- will it be good enough to Wait, what did I guess? Sixty nine? Yeah, Because Altman famously never won an Oscar, so there was talk of, well, he's dead now. It basically came out like as he was dying and like, well, could this finally get him in? And it, it didn't. It wasn't quite that uh So what are you at right now? Well received. Uh hold on, let me do the math. I I am at ahem ahem eight. Fuck you, I'm at twenty three. How is it Otto. how is that well okay wait, I was at okay, as, aside from that negative thirteen I got, I was at twelve. So that's that's about right. What what'd you do on the second one? The second one I got negative one. You got negative one, so you did like 68 or something? Yeah, 68. And I got negative 13. God damn it. That really fucked me up. I thought Crash was very well received for like no reason. I Apparently there were already critics who had the good sense to see that it was kind of heavy-handed. Right, so I got to make up 23 points on this to win. All because of that one, and I was only off by 10 or something. How come, Brady, you're only <laughs> off by two, <laughs> one, one, and like two? <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but I do think it's funny that we have yet one more reason to hate Crash. Okay, I just don't understand how you're always off by like two points. I what well, I did terribly last time. I mean, uh, sometimes I no I you no like last time I won, but I won by like ten points or something. Yeah, that's pretty healthy margin. How are you always off by like one or two points, like at max five? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right, you pick the last movie. I fucking don't know one. Um, okay. A big ensemble cast. Something you haven't cast. seen. That I haven't seen. Yes, that's a big ensemble oh, okay. cast. All right, I know this one. Um, I have never seen the very largely ensemble Bobby from 2006, I want to say. Yeah, pick something else. I haven't even heard of that. It's like the Bobby Kennedy assassination movie. I've not heard of it. Directed by the great Emilio Estevez? <laughs> well, sir, you and I. I'm not going to guess on something I've never <laughs> even heard of. No, I'm kidding. All right. Uh, it's not supposed to be very good. Let me think then. Another big ensemble that I haven't seen. That's going to make it tough. Big ensemble that I have not seen. S- does, does, uh, does Hangover count? Um, it's not that really counts. a big ensemble. It's, it's mostly like five main characters and then a bunch of ancillary guys. Yeah, I mean it has other characters. Does but I've Anchorman seen the Hangover. count? No, I mean Isn't these are just, just movies like with like casts. Big ensemble means that a lot of people are sharing. Like you don't even have a lead almost. How I many is a lot? Five? Because the Hangover would count then. There's five. No, like five I'd main say characters. Ten. If you, if you have ten, okay, let's go, ten with, do let's ten. go with Magnolia. <laughs> All right. Oh, Magnolia? Okay. That sounds good. Okay. It'll be an interesting one because it's 99, so we might not You're have ahead. as you many first. reviews. Uh, okay, Magnolia. Golf rules, bitch. Magnolia. I'm going to go with an 83. I I think it was – I think the critics didn't really like it. They really loved Boogie Nights, so that was somewhere in the 90s. 
and no, I mean, well, for Magnolia to be 83, Boogie Nights would have to be somewhere in the 90s. Do you have any idea where Boogie Nights would fall, Brady? Where Boogie Nights would fall? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know. In the 90s, you think, or no? Boogie Nights, if I had to say, I'd give it, say like 88, 89. Really? Something? Five points? Because it was like hugely acclaimed compared to uh, to Magnolia because the critics really didn't like Magnolia and it didn't do that well. I mean, it was still it was still pretty loved. I don't know. I I actually I'm not sure. Okay, um, I'm gonna go with seventy two. That won't let me win though. No. Uh, what are you at right now? Two. I'm at eight. Eight. You're at you're at eight. Yeah, like a total. And I'm at twenty three, so yeah. I need to make up fifteen points. Fifteen points. And you're guessing eighty three. Yeah. It like impossible to win. <laughs> if okay. you guess sixty-eight, right? I'm gonna do that. Okay, Wait, that, that would tie me. So <laughs> it's gonna be sixty-seven. Sixty-seven. Okay. I hope it didn't get that bad of reviews. That would be really low. I mean, that's not bad, but it's pretty low. Well, we've we've had like three sixty-nines already, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Seventy-seven. Seventy-seven. Okay. Praise, but a little muted, considering that it's a great movie. So I just like lost more, and you lost only five. So you're at thirteen. I'm at thirty-three. I lost six. What? I thought you did eighty-three. Seventy-seven. Seventy-seven. Eighty-six. Fine. Yeah, so I got a fourteen. I got a thirty-three. Even though if I would have gone with what I wanted, yeah, I probably would have gotten a like a. 25. It's okay. Remember, this isn't a super lopsided victory by me, and you've broken the seal. You've drawn my blood, and Dude, now I can wait, die. So your total is what? Your total is what now? My total is <laughs> 14. 14. My total is 33. It's almost double yours. So yeah. that's pretty lopsided. <laughs> yeah. Dick. <laughs> Human paraquat? Fuck you. What's it all about? Well, who wants to start us off? Uh, you start, because my answer is, it's just a story, dude. Yeah, is it? <laughs> it doesn't have to be about something. It's just... No, no, I, I do actually... I think this movie is about a lot... Even though what's lovely about it is it's got such a delightful plot that you can kind of just go with the plot itself and enjoy it for what it is. But I think what it's about, first and foremost, what it's about is the death of a world, of a way of life. And so in that way, I think it has a lot of parallels with the leopard. It's about saying goodbye to this what lifestyle that probably was too, too weird and too moneyed to really last it's probably good that we live in a world where things are a little more equal, but it's kind of a sad goodbye to an elegant, civilized, very aristocratic way of life. Uh, and it's also about the, the limits, the power and limits of art and civility in a world that at its core is fundamentally savage. It's about that tiny card that Edward Norton hands to Gustav, which protects him, but even then he says this is only temporary. It's about a world that's only temporary, and it's about how civility and art 
are very good things because they make us better. They make us Ooh. better to each other. Ooh, I've got the quote. Yeah, t- give us the quote. There are still faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse that once was called humanity. Yeah, beautiful line. So it's about he was one. It's about what a wonderful thing it is that art can do that. That art can tame the savagery within us. But it's also a very sad, allegic acknowledgement that there's a limit to that. You know, I, I'm reminded of what Tony Scott said when he reviewed Pan's Labyrinth. That narrative ha- is powerful, but it's limited. Tony Scott reviewed Pan's Labyrinth. He did, or A.O. Scott. Okay. Uh, yeah. New York Times. Is yeah, Tan- Tony Scott was on a, a director. First name basis. <laughs> and he's, I, he's my favorite reviewer. Yeah. So he's Tony to me. Um, yeah. So it's I thought you meant like Tony Scott, like Ridley Scott's brother. Right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's about the the limit of of art to you know as much as it may make the world a nicer place, art's not going to stop the Holocaust. Art can't completely stop violence. So it's this sad acknowledgement of, of of beautiful things, the power of beautiful things, but also the acknowledgement that. They're delicate at the same time, and that's maybe what makes yeah, them Yeah, and they always fade with time. I yeah, guess that, that was a big, like, big motif of that. You know, art, <laughs> the beauty of, of a rose petal or a cake, what's that against Hitler? So, and, and, and I'll say one final thing, kind of getting even more uh, specific. I think it's a nice defense of Anderson's style. You know, his detractors sometimes say things like, oh, yeah, like, they're really beautiful it's films. Overly but they're so cute. Yeah, yeah. they're airless. So and just and yeah. Yeah, like, way too manicured. And this is a defense of why things that are manicured are good. Because, yeah, okay, fine. Maybe they, they, they don't amount to a hill of beans in the face of history and genocide and war. Or they're not entirely realistic. Right. But they make the world nice. And that's why I love, we get those two scenes, one in the jailhouse, where... The people are going to destroy the cake, but they can't do it. And so, you know. Al- also, pe- the eating of the cake. Right. That, like, he, they're getting cakes all the time, and he's sharing them with everybody, and they just go. Yeah, oh, like, at the very least, thing. maybe beauty can at least, at least sort of tame the savage within us, even if that won't last. But the sad thing is that often that won't last. So, it is really a sad movie at heart. Oh, yeah, no, it's a very sad movie. Unla- like, Zero Mustafa is a sad character who. Pretty much gave up everything after um, after he lost Agatha because you know the the one part in his life where he was happy was there with that you know he was born in um, uh, you know the, I think the Middle East is where he's supposed to be from right uh, yeah and then you know there was a a war and like his parents were killed and he was stranded and he made his way here and then he started working in hotels and he wanted to be a lob- lobby boy at the Grand Budapest because he heard about it. Uh, and it's just kind of, so that's very sad beginning to his life. Right. And then, uh, he learns under M. Gustav, who's a legend, but then he gets killed. Right. And then he's with Agatha and, and that basically is, is something that he can, he can latch onto that this is his one glimmer of happiness. And then a disease that could easily be cured nowadays, um, basically kills his love. And he keeps the hotel, and he basically sells, he gives all his property to the government uh, of this fictional country in order to keep the hotel, which R- is right. falling into disrepair and getting dilapidated, and you know can't be upkept. He doesn't have enough money to upkeep it or anything like that. But it's uh, the memory of the the one time he was happy. Yeah, and and part of the reason it should we should note that the hotel becomes more disrepaired and ugly kind of echoes communism because we're in this Eastern Bloc country. So yet again, you know, we have Nazism on the one end and then socialism on this other end. 
And so it's about this delicate little hotel. Uh, what does he call it? A An bastion of elegant old rune. Right. It's caught in the middle of these big, big forces that just destroy it eventually. Like it's just a little, a little speck in this big world. And so it's beautiful, and yet how tiny and insignificant things like beauty are in the face of all that. Huh. I think that's a good uh, summarization. You want to do our understudy and then uh, come back and wrap, uh, you know, talk a little more about what it's about? Yeah, sure. Oh, but but just while it's on my mind, can okay. I say one thing? Because this, this isn't film related. Go ahead and talk if it's on your mind. Oh, it's just on my mind. <laughs> yeah, if it's on your mind, I guess, I guess just, you know, say it, man. <laughs> Between his lovely cameo in uh, the third season of Louie and his small but very memorable work in Inside Lewin Davis, and now this, I'm glad F. Murray Abraham's back. And he seems to be picking his ro- roles well, because he's a talented actor that was kinda, we kind of stopped seeing after Amadeus for a little bit. So I'm glad that he's actually Still back. I haven't seen Amadeus. It's, oh, that's a really good movie. I know, I've heard. I've heard. I think when it came out, my mom didn't want me to see it or something like that. And then that's <laughs> why I never got to see it. That's funny. Is, is there, like, sex in it? I think there's there's sex in it, right? Uh, there's sex. Maybe some implied sex. I mean, yeah, no? there's probably a little. I don't know. I've, I Isn't there nudity sex. or sex or something? It's, it's not like a super racy well, But it's rated but R, right? Uh, Yeah, it is rated or R. There's cursing or something something my mom didn't want me to see <laughs> it's it's uh, yeah I, d- I don't know actually anyway let's go do you don't know why my mom didn't let me see Amadeus when it came out no I, I've forgotten I mean how do you not know don't you and my mom talk on a regular basis and like kind of you know write this stuff down well on a ledger we're having a falling out a little bit but uh, we we're gonna get back on track Okay. Our our weekly Starbucks or no Cherubini sessions. We need to get back oh. to talking. <laughs> mm-hmm. Me and Annette. Yeah. She really pissed me off actually earlier this week. Oh, uh, what'd she do? Uh, just you know, fucking being crazy when I was over there trying to fix their shit, and then like wouldn't let an argument go, and I was like, what the fuck? Uh, and I just went. I finally just went like, I'm going home. And my dad texted me. He's like, you didn't even finish your beer. I'm like, no, you guys were being. You were just arguing with each other the entire time I was there instead of, yeah. Yeah, but a family spat is no excuse for a wounded soldier. <laughs> well, it was kind of like if I finished the beer, then like however inflammatory it was being to my mom, it would probably be ten times that because it was like a double IPA and I was, you know. Ah, uh, double IPA. If, if I'm a little bit drunk and I'm pissed off, it makes it worse. You know? Yeah, that if tends I'm a, to If be I'm <laughs> a lot drunk and I'm pissed off, then, then I can deal with it a little better, but. But, you know, if I just have, like, one beer in me, I just kind of get a little... Just enough to loosen the tongue. Right. Yeah. <laughs> kind of nice. All right, let's go do understudy. All right. We're so sorry we couldn't get the actors to do the scene from this screenplay. But we've got two understudies, and to be honest... They're probably more famous anyway, so try to catch the actors, try to guess the movies, tweet us at C-A-R-N-Y couch. This game called Understudy is happening, happening, happening right now. Seduce and Destroy, this is Chad. Can I have your home phone number with Eric Cope, please? Hi, uh, hello, great, this is Seduce and Destroy. It is. Can I have your home phone number with Eric Hope? Well, I uh, don't want to order anything, you see. I have a situation, a situation just coming that's uh, really pretty serious, and I'm uh, not sure who I should talk to or uh, 
what I should do, but uh, could you maybe put me in touch with the right person if I explain myself? I'm really only equipped to take orders. Well, can you connect me to someone else? Well, what's the situation? Well, okay, let me see how I explain this without it uh, seeming kind of crazy, but here I go. Uh, I'm, m- my name is Phil Parma, and uh, I work for a man named Earl Partridge, Mr. Earl Partridge. I'm his nurse. He's a very sick man. He's a dying man, and he's sick, and he's asked me to help him, to help him find his, his son. Hello? Are you there? Hello? I'm here. I'm listening. See, Frank T.J. Mackey is Earl Partridge's son. Why don't they have the same last name? They don't have the same last name. I know, and I uh, can't really explain that. Uh, but I have a feeling that there's something, some situation between them, like they don't really know each other much, or, well, something like they don't talk much anymore. Uh-huh. Does this sound weird? Well, I'm not sure why you're calling me. I'm sorry. I'm Brady. Not, I don't know. Baby. Does this sound weird? Well, I'm not sure why you're calling me. There's no number for Frank in any of Earl's stuff, and he's pretty out of it. I mean, like I said, he's dying, you know, of cancer. What kind of cancer? Brain and lung. My mother had breast cancer. I'm rough. I'm sorry. Did she Did she make it? Oh, she's fine. Oh, that's good. It was scary, though. It's a hell of a disease. Sure is. So why call me? That was undecided. Tweet us your answer at C-A-R-N-Y Couch. Okay, we're back with our little thing about what's it all about. Um, I did want to note the shifting time periods. And oh wait, let me get my notes as I move with the microphone. Come on, microphone, move with me while I get the notes. Get the notes, bring them back over here. Mm. Yes, what's get it all about? Okay, the so there's a thing about uh, this kind of being a little Russian doll thing of a story. Um, this is not something I wrote. Um, and. I mean, not that, just that particular piece of paper I didn't want, not, not the Russian doll story. But uh, we start with, uh, we have all these different aspect ratios to basically delineate different time frames. I mentioned it in the thing, but we open present day 16 by 9 because that's how all our TVs are set up, um, which I don't know why we picked that when wider is definitely better. Anyway, uh, and then we go back to uh, the book forward where it's kind of documentary style. So probably shot on 16 millimeter without an anamorphic lens, 1.85 by one, which is very close to 16 by nine. That would be if you didn't have an audio track on the film and you're recording it on dat tape or something like that. Yeah. Uh, then we go to the intro where we take pictures of the Grand Budapest in its height of operation. Uh, and that's way back in time. So that's 1.33 by one, which is a uh, uh, film without a audio track as well. Uh, then we pop into uh, the story of him being told all this stuff. It's 1968. We were using anamorphic lenses for uh, widescreen stuff, so that's 2.35 by 1. Then the main plot occurs in, uh, you know, the, the smallest Russian doll, uh, occurs in the, um, during, you know, 1930, <laughs> at the beginning of World War II. So that's all 1.33 by 1. 
uh, when we go back to um, uh, the end where we're wrapping up the story and we got Jude Law talking to... Jude Law talking to uh, Zero, played by F. Murray Abraham. Yeah, we're back to 68, so that's 2.35 by 1. Oh, also, when Mr. Gustav is killed by the SS uh, wearing their black drab uniforms, that scene of death is in black and white in 1.33 by 1, uh, which is probably just kind of underscoring, um, you know, basically, we are now in World War II. We are now in the great uh, death and destruction and, uh, you know, the... Uh, good versus evil, black versus white sort of uh, system, you know, because if you, uh, most World War II movies uh, prior to pr Saving Private Ryan definitely did a certain amount of sepia or black and white, especially the famous ones, Longest Day, Schindler's List, stuff like that. Right. Um, and then, of course, we go back to the girl finishing up the book by the graveside of the offer and back to 16 by 9, our, our current aspect ratio. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that kind of underscores the... Uh, Russian doll aspect of the story within the story. Yeah, if we're on that, I guess I'll, I'll bring up how much I love this ending because I, you know, a big part of this movie, as I've said, is this feeling of loss, of, you know, things being lost to time, of uh, beautiful things that can't last. And so that Russian doll structure, not only is it clever and makes the film beautiful to look at, but I think it has real thematic heft because at the end we zip so quickly from where we were with uh, Gustav at his height when he was alive, and we zipped so fast back into the present. We And to me, it communicates this feeling of everything being lost to time. Just uh, even, even when we were telling this story, that was in another time, and we're no longer there, and time is just moving us along, and, and we're losing things to it. And no matter how beautiful something is, it, it will eventually be swept away by the tide of time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why the story is very sad. It's about loss, it's about losing, and it's about how only in some one's memory can something really hold on for long. And after that, after you die, uh, after M. Gustav dies, you know, the world that he personified, which at mm -hmm. one point they poignantly, poignantly say that that world was over long before he even entered it, but he yeah, kept up the illusion very well. And uh, also, you know, this I keep for Agatha, you know, I visit in order to remember all that and that sort of thing. That story uh, kind of starts to fall, but because the author wrote about it, mm -hmm. then, of course, um, it is kept alive for a little bit longer. Um, and then the uh, last final message of hope is this girl reading this story by the graveside of the author. Even though the author has now died, it now lives on in her. Right. So there's there's always and hope yeah. and, and peace in that. Wider really is better. You know, you know why? Because... Fat bottom movies make the rocking world go round. Yeah. Oh, but while we're on the ending, because uh, this to me... Excellent transition. Yeah, uh, dedications usually are just what they are. They're uh, just nice ways to uh, tip the hat to someone who was maybe an inspiration on a film. But in this case, the dedication that's at the very end, to me, is a final drum snare on that zooming back through time. Because mm -hmm. we dedicate it to this author... Um, Oh, God. <laughs> Zweig. What's his first name again? Alan? Alfred? Uh, no, I can't remember. Carl? No. Cl getting close. Hans? Fritz? Franz? Franz! <laughs> Franz! Seinfeld! Seinfeld it's Franz! What's yeah. the big deal? Yeah, we're both reaching for our friends. We really Stefan! Just Stefan! Not yeah. even close. It's we're Stefan Zweig. Stefan's. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we really need somebody who just sits here and looks shit up for us when we don't know what it is. Yeah, because... We right, need so a secretary or a producer or something. So a bit of history. Zweig was a Jewish author, uh, very famous in the period leading up to World War II, who you know, wasn't killed in the death camps, but killed himself because of what was going on with the persecution of Jews in World War II. And so, you know, he's this, he's not only this inspiration for the style and tone of the script, but also kind of this reminder of, of a time when entire lives, entire cultures were swept away by the awful force of Nazism. And so to me, the dedication is not only nice because of what a huge impact he has on the style of the film, but it's also tying back into this theme of just things that were lost and and that what's that's incredibly dark to me because it's not just art and culture and the way things looked it's people sometimes people are what gets lost in the shuffle and that's kind of in the subtext of this movie right agreed so yeah that's it really is his darkest work by a mile yeah well i think that uh, that wraps up what's it all about what are we doing next week uh, oh wait we already yeah we're doing we happy go lucky Happy Go Lucky, right? Uh, no, 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 we're doing uh, we're another doing year. Oh, wait, is that where we are now? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At some point off the record, we were talking about Into the Wild, but I don't know when that Well, no, in. but I mean, that's in the future. Oh, uh, yeah. We're you actually... You can't see the future, Okay, right man. now we're in, like, the aspect ratio of, uh, you know, uh, you know, th- this has just been... Re- we did High Fidelity last week. Right. Right. Wow, how unbelievably fitting <laughs> in a movie about going back in time. We've gone back in podcast time. Yeah, exactly. But it won't last. No. No. Won't last. Won't last at all. So this will be a May 27th episode, I think. Oh, that was a good time. Yeah. I remember that time. Yeah, it was a good time. It was before everything, uh, it was before I got really depressed. Before the incident. Yes, before Rob's... Uh, Drug addiction and alcoholism tore the uh, podcast apart. Before tragedy hit. No, no. This no, is wait. After afterwards. After tragedy rebuilds. But more tragedy will hit because it's the nature of the universe. Quite right. Radio. Uh, right, well yeah, so we'll see you next week for uh, uh, another year. Yeah. Can't wait. Wait. Well. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Aim zone. That's 62.